This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. My name is Annie Davidson, and I am Senior MSP Compliance Counsel for ExamWorks Compliance Solutions. I'm also a board member at the MSPN Network and happy to be hosting on this side of the microphone for my first time. So thanks for joining for today's podcast. With us today, we have a couple of heavy hitters. We've got John Kane, who is the Vice President of Strategy at Amitros Financial Services. He's also an MSPN board member and, in fact, on the executive committee with the MSPN Network. So thanks for joining us today, John. We also have with us uh, another heavy hitter, Marty Cassavoy, who is the VP of MSP Compliance for ExamWorks Compliance Solutions. Let me tell you a little bit about both guests before we get started. I'll start with Marty. Uh, Prior to Marty's tenure here over at ExamWorks Compliance Solutions, he worked at a Boston area law firm that spun off their MSP compliance services and formed CrowParity. And over the next 10 years there, he and CrowParity developed a national reputation on the vanguard of injecting a legal sensibility into what had been purely a clinical industry. They were eventually acquired by Verisk Analytics, uh, also known as ISO Claims Partners. Marty joined ECS in 2017, where he leads the compliance department and maintains oversight of the conditional payment department as well. In his current role, Marty is responsible for ECS's national outreach, training, business development, and account management, and the delivery of all conditional payment services. Marty is a graduate of Boston University and Suffolk University Law School, and he's an attorney licensed to practice law in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Marty himself works out of the Woburn, Massachusetts office. Welcome, Marty. And then let me get back and do an introduction here of John Kane. So as I mentioned, uh, John is on the board at uh, the MSPN network, and he is recently the VP of strategy at Amitros. But prior to that, he had a very illustrative career. Uh, he served as the Medicare program director for Liberty Mutual Group prior to joining Amitros. He was a 25-year employee with Liberty Mutual and served in a variety of claim positions, including liability and workers' compensation, including regional claims manager for integrated disability management and loss portfolio risk manager. He has been actively engaged in the MSP compliance realm for the last 15 years or so, and he developed Liberty Mutual's centralized Medicare department. He was responsible for vendor management, quality assurance, MSP compliance, and he was a liaison to the public affairs uh, to advocate for CMS reform. So he uh, continues to be an active member of the Medicare Advocacy Recovery Coalition, MARC, as well as, of course, a recognized leader within MSPN. He is also an instructor for the Certified Medicare Set-Aside Program. And prior to his work at Liberty and Amitros, he worked in the financial sector as a financial planner with a degree in business management. 
He also has an associate in claims designation. He is an MSCC, so a Medicare set-aside certified consultant, and he holds the CMSP designation as well. So welcome, John. Uh, without further ado, we will jump into our topic today, which is talking about section 4.3 of the recent WCMSA reference guide. And this podcast in particular is meant to be a follow-up from the recent webinar that John and I recorded uh, with another member of the MSP industry, uh, Deb Watkins. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that webinar, I recommend you press pause and go ahead and uh, head on over to the MSPN website and uh, get yourself a copy of that webinar. Take a listen. We'll cover in that webinar uh, kind of all of the changes that came about, but specifically we focus on section 4.3. Um, we'll do a little bit of refresher here in a moment with Marty and John, just to kind of level set. But today's podcast is really picking up where our webinar left off. Our webinar occurred one day prior to Medicare's town hall. Uh, they wanted to talk a little bit more at that town hall about maybe some clarifications around the language and how 4.3 was drafted. Uh, so we will dive right in. So Marty and John, thank you so much for joining us today. I know as we were preparing for this podcast, we kind of talked about wanting to lay a little bit of groundwork, uh, of course, knowing that this is following the webinar that MSPN hosted. Um, I wanted to just kind of lay out a little bit of that groundwork for our listeners so that when you two dive into the more conversational piece, uh, you can hit the ground running and folks will kind of know where we're coming from. So on January 10th, 2022, uh, we received an updated WCMSA reference guide. That's the Workers' Compensation Medicare Set-Aside Manual. This is version 3.5 that Medicare dropped, and it contained two new sections and no other changes. The additional sections relate to evidence-based or non-submit Medicare set-asides and the prerequisite steps prior to submitting a workers' compensation settlement for review. And what we want to talk about specifically, of course, is the section where CMS in 4.3 calls out this idea of non-CMS-approved products that may be used by beneficiaries post-settlement in order to reduce the likelihood of shifting payment for the injury-related treatment onto Medicare. And the full text of that new policy, just for those listeners out there who may not have had a chance to read it, uh, reads as follow, uh, follows, a number of industry products exist with the intent of indemnifying insurance carriers and CMS beneficiaries against future recovery for conditional payments made by CMS for settled injuries. Although not inclusive of all products covered under this section, these products are most commonly termed evidence-based or non-submit. 42 CFR 411.46 specifically allows CMS to deny payment for treatment of work-related conditions if the settlement does not adequately protect Medicare, the Medicare program's interest. Unless a proposed amount is submitted, reviewed, and approved using the process described in this reference guide prior to settlement, CMS cannot be certain that the Medicare program's interests are adequately protected. 
As such, CMS treats the use of non-CMS approved products as a potential attempt to shift the financial burden by improperly giving reasonable recognition to both medical expenses and income replacement. As a matter of policy and practice, CMS will deny payment for medical services related to the work comp injuries or illness requiring attestation of appropriate exhaustion equal to the total settlement less procurement costs before CMS will resume primary payment obligation for settled injuries or illnesses. This will result in the claimant needing to demonstrate complete exhaustion of the net settlement amount rather than the CMS-approved WCMSA amount. And that's the end of the quote for that section. So this new policy really indicates that CMS cannot be certain that non-CMS-approved products will, quote-unquote, adequately protect Medicare's interest. Of course, they're focusing on the idea that these are a, these uh, products out there are a potential attempt to shift the financial burden onto the Medicare program. Um, and then, of course, they're saying that they're going to deny payment up to the full amount of the settlement. So we've now had the CMS town hall. CMS has had an opportunity to clarify a little bit about their statements. So let's move on. Let's hear from Marty and John with respect to this section and the town hall. Thanks, Annie. Yeah, everybody. So section 4.3 of the reference guide came out in early January, and it, it was the only major update in the recent WCMSA reference guide. So what did section 4.3 of the reference guide say? Well, section 4.3 was part of the reference guide update in early January, and it did a couple of things. First of all, it labeled evidence-based and non-submit Medicare set-asides as, quote, non-CMS approved products. So it's the first time that phraseology has been thrown out there by Medicare. And Medicare indicated that as a matter of policy and practice, CMS will, will deny payment for medical services related to the work comp injuries or illness requiring attestation of appropriate exhaustion equal to the total settlement amount whenever a non-CMS approved product was utilized. And that quote from Medicare will result in the claimant needing to demonstrate complete exhaustion of the net settlement amount rather than a CMS approved WCMSA amount. So uh, basically what CMS is saying is if you didn't go through the process of getting your MSA reviewed and approved by Medicare prior to settlement, then you're gonna be forcing the claimant into a spend down. Obviously, huge deal in terms of the, the putting the policy out there, number one, but also it's a it's a big deal that creates a lot of implications and more more than anything else, created a lot of questions um, in the industry over the, the last couple of months. And uh, John, you know, right away, I think CMS recognized that there was a problem because um, you know, less than two months later, on February 17th, they decided that they were going to hold a town hall call and dedicated uh, you know, the, almost all of the call to the section 4.3 clarifications of it. They spent uh, a lot of time going through a number of questions that had been received by uh, industry uh, folks. Uh, and, and right away, you know, obviously there was some clarification that they identified. So um, first one was around uh, the, the question of when is this policy going to be enforced and how will it be enforced and will it be prospective or not? So they touched on that. So um, what do you think of the, the sort of the confusing almost way in which they describe whether it's going to be considered to be prospective or retrospective? 
Yeah, thanks, Marty. So, you know, in terms of, you know, what, what we've heard um, is that this isn't a change, it's a clarification. I mean, in 4.3, you know, they're, they're talking about, you know, CFR 411.46, which they have the, you know, the right to, you know, deny payment. So that point was made. Another point that John Jenkins made is this MSA is strictly an agreement between CMS and the beneficiary. So in terms of, you know, that, that denial, um, as you indicated, Marty, it's up to the total settlement amount. And then um, the procurement cost will come off that. And then in addition to, I think they added this, that conditional payments will also reduce that amount down. So, you know, that net amount would be what the injured worker would have to spend before Medicare would then step in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that uh, It was very interesting the way they kind of almost in some ways changed things a little bit on the fly on the 17th. Um, they did mention that they would issue a clarifying um, uh, update or clarification to the, the actual language. And while we don't know exactly what that clarification is, um, it was implied certainly on the call that it would relate to the question that we've seen quite a bit around what do you do in situations where the case does not meet review thresholds in light of the fact that the language says that CMS will deny related claims if it's the case that the case isn't reviewed by Medicare. But John kind of clarified that, right? Yeah, Marty, it, it was interesting because, you know, John led with the, uh, you know, the fact that CMS has the right to deny and then as we got into, you know, the discussion, um, it seemed to be retrospective. So, you know, this clarifying memo came out, I believe on January 10th of 2022, and that it seemed like the answer shifted from prospective to retrospective. Now, another important thing is that, you know, on every CMS call, they start off with, you know, uh, that, you should be relying on written guidance. So um, the discussions within, you know, the CMS town hall calls, um, you should rely on like the WC reference guide as opposed to what's said in the call. So there could be changes. You know, this, this call was definitely in follow-up to, you know, the, the paragraph, you know, on section 4.3, plenty of questions out there a lot of gray area. So it was good that, you know, CMS stepped up, scheduled this, this call to provide further guidance. Yeah. And, yeah. and John, this is Annie popping back in. I, I just want to say, I'm glad you brought up kind of that, that letter from CMS that's sort of been circulating out there because there were so many questions around that. Um, and I think this prospective retrospective kind of conversation that we're having now and the bit of confusion that comes up in from the town hall, I think it really highlights the need for clarification from CMS. And I'm glad CMS is committed to doing that. We'll have to remain, it, you know, it remains to be seen what they say exactly. Um, but that right off the bat caused a whole heck of a lot of confusion, knowing that they'd already circulated something uh, indicating that it, it appears that they were already enforcing this. 
Um, if we want to move on a little bit, I think, you know, we, we know that CMS um, really with this language was trying to get at this idea that they don't want to recognize non-submit MSAs or alternative allocation methods. Can, you, can Marty, do you want to talk, uh, maybe start us off talking a little bit about that and what they, they sort of view that as um, and why we think they might be doing that? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to recognize that just because you've utilized a non-submit allocation or an evidence-based allocation, provided that you've actually designated money for future medical care, you haven't necessarily created an issue that's gonna create risk for you or your client with regard to CMS. And actually it was surprising a little bit, but John mentioned that on the, on the call on the 17th, he indicated that the non-approved product is not the actual burden shift, but it's the fact that Medicare has to make payment. And Medicare expects, and John indicated, that if it's the case that payment does have to be made by Medicare and it potentially is unreasonable, well, then that's going to be the issue that's going to create the burden shift, and that's going to create risk for the beneficiary in terms of their future medical care. So, so simply because you're utilizing an evidence-based MSA or a non-submit product is not in and of itself the problem. The problem potentially arises only if it's the case that Medicare has to make payment because the MSA or non-CMS approved product, if you will, is in fact exhausted. John, there was another key point that was raised over and over by CMS on the 217 call. And that had to do with section 111 reporting and the way in which Medicare identifies future medicals on a case, uh, either via section 111 reporting or not. And there was some, some news that was released essentially on that call. Uh, I don't know if you could kind of go through that. Maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. I mean, this was probably one of the first times that I've heard CMS indicate that they weren't using the uh, Section 111 TPOC reporting in terms of, you know, utilizing that information in the, in the common working file. So um, when there's a medical provider that's billing Medicare, it's the Medicare... Uh, administrative contractor that actually reviews that bill. So the, they're also referred to as a MAC. So these, these MACs look at, all right, what's in the common working file? So with an approved MSA, there's a marker in the file that indicates what that approved MSA amount is. So they would pay up to that amount if that fund exhausts and it's properly you know, administered with attestation, then um, Medicare would then kick in and make payment. Now, if it's a non-submit case, you know, they're, they're kind of blind to that unless there's you know, some notice to CMS, you might have an MSA vendor that uh, sends CMS, you know, BCRC, uh, a letter indicating that this is a non-submit and here's the amount, or if settlement documents or uh, annual attestation is filed. In that situation, 
CMS would put a marker in the file up to the uh, total amount of the, the settlement minus the procurement costs. Uh, but the point is that if there's no proactive measure by you know, beneficiary, plaintiff's attorney, MSA vendor, you know, to, to notice BCRC on it, then BCRC could be making payments on it. So it was just, it was interesting to, to hear that point. And I'm sure that's, you know, something that CMS is evaluating. Marty? Well, yeah. I think that's a really interesting, I was going to say just, John, I think that's a really interesting point because we, this is very new for all of us. And, you know, Marty, does this really get at this idea that if somebody doesn't submit something through their review process, that they don't have a way of tracking it at all? Is that what this is saying? That's what it sounds like, that if they don't go through the review process, that Medicare does not at the present point, present point in time, utilize the Section 111 TPOC reporting data to identify that a person was or was not using um, an MSA. So, you know, you and I and probably everybody uh, who's been handling Section 111 reporting or working on consulting with Section 111 reporting for the last, you know, 12 years probably would have assumed by now that the fact that there was a workers' compensation threshold TPOC that was reported to CMS could clue them in on the fact that maybe there should have been an MSA on that case. And if they haven't heard anything, well, then maybe they have an opportunity to, to, to inquire. And, and yet it seems like even 12 years into it, they are relying only on the manual processes to track WCMSAs, whether they be the fact that somebody actually has submitted an MSA for review and approval and then presented settlement documents, or somebody just randomly notifies CMS, whether that be through a process or just because they felt like out of the goodness of the heart that they wanted to do so. Um, it in some ways is surprising that at, in 2022, that if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, then apparently CMS can't hear it either. Yeah, that's a great point. I guess one of the questions that comes up, uh, you know, and I know John, you and I talked about this a little bit in, in the webinar, um, was sort of this idea of, okay, if somebody is, is using a non-submit MSA or an evidence-based MSA, and the funds exhaust either, you know, temporarily or uh, fully, you know, what happens then? Will Medicare step in and make payments like they would with a, a CMS-approved MSA for uh, a temporary exhaustion and or a permanent exhaustion? Did we get anything from John Jenkins at CMS on what happens once an MSA submits is you know, what are they going to do? Is there an appeal process? John King, can you yeah, shed so, some light on that? Sure. On the, on the non-submit, you know, CMS takes a very simplistic view of this in terms of how the MSA is funded. They just look at lump sum and it makes it easy for them because they just look at the total settlement amount minus the procurement costs. So think about that. If you have an MSA that was funded with an annuity, the way that CMS explained it is that there's gonna be temporary exhaustion potentially in the future. And the injured workers need, will need to cover that cost up to the you know, total settlement amount 
minus the, the procurement costs. So there's, you know, there's some, you know, significant issues if the injured worker didn't fully understand, you know, the, the way the MSA was structured and their responsibilities. So to that point, you also need to look at the settlement documents and to see if there's any indemnification, you know, um, was, was there any indemnification with a policy um, where the injured worker could go back and get that covered? So there's definitely some jeopardy here for the, the injured worker. And, you know, I would, I would strongly recommend, as does CMS, that, you know, these funds be professionally administered um, so that, you know, these funds can be preserved. And there's additional, you know, savings that the professional administrators have where they can, you know, they have networks, they have discounts. And you know they're able to preserve those funds for a longer period of time. In terms of you know a lump sum, same thing. So we paid out cash for this. So the injured workers, uh, once that's fully exhausted, then they're going to need to um, go through the five level appeal process. So we talked a little bit about the the Medicare uh, administrative contractor. They're the ones that are going to issue that initial denial. And then the next step is, you know, a redetermination process where simply, you know, someone else looks at it and they'll probably come to the same conclusion. It's really going to need to go into at least the third level of appeal process where you have an administrative judge that's evaluating the, the case, the facts of the case, how that uh, future medical allocation you know, was projected, was it reasonable? So, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot to this. I would agree with you 100%, John. One of the things that this really does underscore is the importance of having your MSA professionally administered, particularly for, uh, you know, the larger dollar, more complex cases, if you're going through a process of not submitting the case and there's nothing in here and Medicare was quite clear, there's nothing in here that requires you to submit the case to CMS. But if you're going down that path and you're not gonna submit the case, I don't think I've ever heard a greater advertisement for professional administration. You do not wanna be in a position where an individual is forced to make determinations about how their money is being spent and documenting how their money is being spent and yet creating risk for themselves and, and everybody else involved in that particular settlement. And that's what this section really does underscore and emphasize is that <laughs> when you do avoid the process of going through this CMS review program, you set yourself up for that potential. Doesn't mean that you're going to be unsuccessful but it does create potential future risk. And, and that's the reason why professional administration and these types of cases is so critical. Yeah, I'm already, I would, you know, I just add to that, you know, several of these injured workers, um, you know, might have a GED, even a high school education. And up into the point of the settlement, the workers' compensation carrier, you know, had been paying these medical bills for the individual. And then, you know, once the, the case settles, you know, there's a shift there where the injured worker now is responsible for negotiating with the, the medical provider. 
And, and what happens if, you know, that injured worker is treating for a non-work-related knee injury, and then they also have a back injury that's work-related, and they get a bill for the whole thing. Will they know that they need to separate out, you know, the knee from the back, have the, you know, the back paid by um, the MSA funds, and then the knee paid by, you know, Medicare? There's, there's a lot of work that goes into this. And I certainly agree that, you know, professional administration, you know, is, is the way to go if, you know, the injured worker really understands all the work that goes behind the scenes. Because ultimately, we want to make sure that Medicare beneficiary isn't denied coverage. Well, and, and John, I think making sure that somebody isn't denied coverage you know, having you talk a little bit about what that appeals process looks like, I'd like to just, you know, stop and, and take a look at that for a minute, because I tend to handle a lot of the ALJ cases that we have over here um, at ECS, and I just have had hearings lately where it's been, I filed these cases in 2018 or 2019 to get to the ALJ, and CMS does tend to have a bit of a faster track to get beneficiaries cases heard. But I, I still think you're adding in so much time um, for, let's think about it, a redetermination, which is level one in kind of the typical world that we live in. Medicare gives folks, you know, 120 days to file that. They make a decision in 60. You don't like the decision you get after 60 days. Uh, you can file in 180 days to take it to level two. You get another 60 days before a decision, and then you're going to level three within 60, and four is the Medicare Appeals Council, five is federal district court, and it's 60 days to get into each of those. But it's years at level three. It's years at level four, and it's several years before you're going to be able to get to federal district court. So I'm wondering... If, if, you know, we already sort of said that professional administration is a really good way to go, but can you guys talk a little bit about the impact to a claimant on this, um, sending this through this review process for an entirely voluntary program? There just seems to be a bit of a disconnect there for me. Yeah. Annie, I'll, I'll jump in first here. And I mean, think about the, you know, the injured worker. So, you know, they had their medical provider, they build out, you know, um, through the, the MSA, those MSA funds were exhausted with the, the non-submit. Now that medical provider bills, you know, uh, Medicare directly, then you have the MAC that denies payment. Now the question is, you know, is that medical provider going to continue to treat that individual if they don't have any other funds, you know, to pay for their medical treatment. Um, so there's, you know, there is a certain amount of jeopardy here for the, for the injured, you know, party. And it could, it could leave them where they're unable to, to treat. Well, and I think it brings up an issue for me too, because we also know that CMS says, hey, if you settle your case and you're not yet a Medicare beneficiary, you're somebody out there with a reasonable expectation, you're allowed to, and frankly encouraged to, from the day you settle your case, 
use those funds to pay for care related to the injury. Um, but what happens then, you know, a couple years later, you get on Medicare and Medicare now is challenging some of those payments. Years have gone by. You've already paid those providers. Those providers may or may not be participating in the Medicare program. So it also raises the issue of, you know, what, what sort of stick will that, will Medicare have over that provider uh, if the individual paid that provider? I mean, it really comes down to, by and large, punishments for these beneficiaries or folks who weren't beneficiaries and then become beneficiaries. I, I mean, there's a lot of sticks involved here. At least that's kind of how I'm reading this. If they, you know, accidentally make a payment for something they shouldn't have and Medicare is not going to give them credit for that. It just seems really challenging uh, for an area that's sort of already kind of ridden with landmines. It just seems like this maybe it might be adding more to that. Uh, Marty, do you have anything that you want to add? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's not only that um, it is more challenging from a from a beneficiary's perspective. I think that, you know, this gets to the, you know, the core of the matter, which is that, you know, we have seen over the course of the last few months, certainly some reluctance from um, the claimant plaintiff applicant bar to, to, to recommend settlement to their, their Medicare beneficiary or non-Medicare beneficiaries, which is I think actually happening even more non-Medicare beneficiary, but reasonable expectation client. And we've seen uh, we've seen some attorneys recommend delaying settlement. We've seen other attorneys uh, recommending no settlement whatsoever until such time as the person becomes a Medicare beneficiary um, and or until Medicare provides further clarification around section 4.3. And, you know, and on top of all that, you know, we, we know that Medicare is also moving potentially to, to regulate future medicals uh, through the, through a, you know updates to the through to regulations through the, with a proposed rule that potentially could come out later this spring. So there's a lot of potential landmines here and you can't really you know argue with a, an attorney who says I would rather have my client be a Medicare beneficiary with an approved MSA than a non-Medicare beneficiary with a non-threshold MSA where they may have to potentially navigate these um, very challenging waters and potentially through no fault of their own, just through the fact that they're not capable potentially of handling handling the MSA on their own or um, just because of the fact that Medicare has made this so challenging for them uh, that they would be implicating their future coverage, which nobody wants to do. And certainly no attorney would ever want to put their client in a position of costing them potential benefit of Medicare. Yeah, Marty, I'm sure that there's probably some attorneys out there. If the person's going to be, you know, on becoming a Medicare beneficiary in the next four to six months, that they might put that on pause so that they can submit the case to CMS. You know, if that's the case and, you know, um, the adjuster can't get beyond that or defense counsel, I'm certainly taking the opportunity to review the medical exposure to see if there's, you know, any opportunities for for mitigation um, and and spending that time wisely. So, you know, when when you do obtain the MSA, you know, it's the lowest defensible allocation. 
you know, thinking about this, um, one of the things with these MSAs, if you have um, Section 111 reporting um, on a non-Medicare beneficiary, there's no Section 111 reporting. So, you know, the question is, you know, if you settled out on a case and you weren't a Medicare beneficiary yet, it could have been, you know, six months, you know, later that you became a Medicare beneficiary, how would CMS even be aware of that? And there's a couple points there. I mean, you have the medical providers. What's the first thing that happens when you go into the doctors? Question is, is this, is this work related? Is this accident related? So the medical provider should be, you know, uh, providing this information, um, you know, to group health plans or to, to Medicare. Um, so there are some, you know, opportunities for Medicare to determine, you know, if the person is now a Medicare beneficiary. And again, you know, we talked a little bit about Jeopardy. This is a Jeopardy here where, you know, the injured worker will do their best to try and you know, manage the, the medical funds, you know, understanding what's, what's Medicare covered and what's non-Medicare covered, there's a lot to it. Well, and one thing kind of as we're getting ready to, to wrap up here, I, I just, I, I know we've talked a little bit um, in the industry or in webinars or elsewhere about kind of the idea of, you know, not just a race to the bottom non-submit, but more of an ethical non-submit MSA. And I think uh, one of the things that, you know, may be lost on CMS a little bit here is, you know, and I know Marty, I think you've talked about this, you know, 20 some years now worth of hurdles being placed in the way of achieving CMS approval. And so I think there are some very real hurdles and objects in the way for parties when you think about cases on a fact-by-fact -fact basis in jurisdictions throughout this country. And I see this all the time when I'm talking with folks trying to settle their cases. Maybe they don't have a full two years worth of medical records related to the injury. Medicare wants the beneficiary or the person with a reasonable expectation to cough up their personal medical records to prove a negative. Um, you know, a surgery is recommended. They, the, the individual indicates, I'm not going to have that surgery. There are very real hurdles where CMS will, if you're going to participate in their voluntary review process, they will force you to prove negatives. They'll force you to likely overfund. Um, how are parties supposed to kind of reasonably consider Medicare's interest and adequately consider that interest, which is what's required under the statute itself, how do they like sort of shore that up against uh, this voluntary review process and a lot of the arbitrary, I would say, requirements and these, you know, hurdles that are getting thrown up? Marty, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And actually, I think it's a good point to because we don't want to forget about it, that it was mentioned on the 217 town hall call that, and CMS was pretty explicit, that, you know, if there's a possibility that a person will have future medical care, then Medicare expects that that possibility be considered at the time of the settlement and be allocated for future care. So <laughs> there are a number of things that 
attorneys, uh, both on the uh, claimant slash applicant side, as well as defense side, as well as carriers, um, you know, can do to prevent the possibility that something that is, you know, a 10 or 15 or 20% chance of happening winds up being something that gets allocated for future care. And it hurts everybody, right? It can hurt the carrier because they're paying for something that they don't otherwise have to pay for typically. And it hurts the claimant because it potentially, if they do settle that case, locks up a much larger percentage of their settlement than they would otherwise intend to have locked up. And so, um, you know, the what John just talked about, I think, is really critical around making sure that you're using this time to properly mitigate your risk. And what we think about sometimes when we look at a case that's a Medicare beneficiary, you know, we think about the timeline between today and when you're going to be able to settle that case and always have Medicare somewhere on your list. You certainly would think about that around conditional payments. And you should also be thinking about that in terms of the concurrent care that's happening right now and how that may relate to future medical care. So when there are questions that may be raised in medical records around an individual, whether they will or won't have a surgery, it's important to try to have somebody go on the record from the treating physician's perspective. When someone is missing medical records that they simply, just because they're simply not treating, it's important to make sure that the applicant or claimant attorney understands the reason and rationale for going back and getting those records. And even if it's the case that you're merely getting clarification from their, their, their treating physician that they are no longer treating, their personal physician records can be in some way provided that is going to provide some comfort for the individual. Um, all of those things are possibilities that should be explored if it's the case that you really want to go ahead and settle that case. And it's something that is the benefit of both parties. Medicare is not saying that you can't settle these cases. What Medicare is saying is that you have to put their interest basically as part of the bargaining chips when you're going ahead and settling these cases. And, and that's, I think, something that's a tough pill for many of us who've been part of this program for the last 20 years to swallow when it's the case that it's a 10 or 15 or 20% possibility that treatment will be required. And yet Medicare expects, you know, 100% of that funding rather than that full, you know, that 20%. So Annie, there's definitely a case by case creativity that's required and it does require uh, an informed group of folks. And I certainly recommend that if you're working with counsel who doesn't really quite understand um, the way the program works or counsel who wants to be educated, have them pick up the phone and call a John, call him me, call an Annie, call anybody who has, you know, the MSCC certification or significant understanding of the Medicare program, because this is a, a big potential risk, especially moving forward. If we are going to get in a position where post-settlement medical treatment is regulated, essentially. Well, thanks so much, Marty, for that, because I, I, I think that that's, that's where we all find ourselves, right, is, you know, if, if you're working on a case involving somebody who is a Medicare beneficiary or has that reasonable expectation, it's, it really behooves you to reach out and work with folks who are experts in this field. And so with that, I would just like to thank both of you, uh, John Kane and Marty Cassavoy, for setting aside some of your time to talk with us today.
And certainly thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. Our next podcast coming up will be How Do You Counsel Clients Relative to the Paid Act? And so we hope you can join us. Thanks, as always. Have a great day.